Welcome to Joining the Dots, a fun podcast where we chat with and get to know some of the wonderful artists in the Dots and Loops family. My name is Kieran Welch, and on this episode, I had a chat with the amazing Todd Reynolds, a violinist, composer, producer, educator, innovator, who also happens to be one of the most friendly and interesting people you'll ever meet. As this is the first season of Joining the Dots, we are learning and improving with every step. This episode features some of the most fascinating conversation we've facilitated yet. However, it also features some slight audio interference that was unknowingly present during my video chat with Todd. Our amazing audio editor, Dan Kosolke, has cleaned everything up pretty phenomenally, but we just wanted to assure listeners that any slight audio imperfections are on us, and definitely not him. This episode was recorded on Turable and Yagara land, and I would like to start by acknowledging them as the traditional custodians of these lands and pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Hello, Todd. Hi, Kieran. So lovely to be with you. It's great to be with you. Digitally, the miracles of technology. I feel like a 60-year-old person for having just said that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I will tell you, it beats a 24-hour flight. Nice. Oh, my God. The one thing I don't miss with coronavirus is 24-hour flights. It's just not a good time. Right, right. Greetings to uh, greetings to all my friends in Australia. Um, I, it, it's so weird. I think I, I don't even know when it was that I was with you, and it feels like it was just yesterday. And all my times in Brisbane, and all the food I ate, and the coffee I drank, <laughs> and the joy I had hanging with people that I hadn't met before and became friends with. It's uh, still still very very resonant with me even right now. We all miss you very much as well. Uh, for the listeners out there, we were very lucky to have Todd over uh, last year uh, when people could still travel, uh, <laughs> when <laughs> live concerts weren't, uh, you know, quite, um, had to be planned quite differently um, for an amazing show that we'll talk about a bit later in the episode. Um, but Todd, just to start off with, three quick questions, just uh, icebreakers to get to know you. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, so, one. What was the last thing you listened to? Two, what is your favorite smell? And three, if you could learn a new skill instantly, like Matrix style, like what would it be and why? Oh, wow. Okay, since the first two are quite easy, I'm going to take those on. And then the third one, we're gonna, we might have to restate. I think I can remember what that is, but I'll have to think about that for a second. So the last thing that I listened to was... Um, was a, a live, a YouTube live from Noise Engineering, uh, who is a, a wonderful um, synthesizer company, modular synthesis company. And they were having a freak shift, a frequency shift, uh, which, was, which is basically a non-binary and uh, a, nine bear, a non-binary um, 
group of folks who are synthesizer practitioners take over the noise engineering live. And um, and it is this, the Southern California Synthesizer Synthesis Society. And so is Holly Vernon and Trovarsi were the two names, T-R-O-V-A-R-S-I. That's the last thing I listened to mm-hmm. and uh, and it was it was kind of thrilling to see a bunch of female and non-binary folks um, kind of at the helm because we don't have uh, I have never thought that we that we had enough visibility uh, in that direction in the synthesis world in the in the electronic music world it was, it's kind of cool kind of cool so so that's the last thing I listened to yeah, just quickly on that, it's something I think about more and more is that I, I can explain with my, like, you know, uh, education in the classical music world, like, I can explain why it's so sexist. But in, like, I'm you know, a really passionate DJ um, and, like, right. you're a fantastic live electronic performer and it's a world, particularly DJing, like, electronic music, electronic dance music specifically started off as like a, a queer black like music. And I'm just like, you look at like, you know, DJ mag up until a couple of years ago, maybe they still do. I don't know. Used to do like a hottest 100 DJs list. And you were lucky if there was like five women on there. I'm like, this is fucked. Like, why is this the way that it is? Um, It's, it's, it's because it's the way that everything is. Yes, exactly. And then it comes to a more broader societal, like, this is why you have feminism and subtle change, subtle change. And, you know, I mean, I'm a, I'm a person in the, I'm 55 years old, uh, just to kind of, you know, locate me in terms of culture and generation and where I've come up. And, and the, the, uh, the whole, I mean, first of all, I never thought I would see marriage equality, what we call marriage equality in my lifetime. I also didn't think I'd ever see the legalization of marijuana in my lifetime. And both of these things have happened. But then past that, I wasn't expecting. I was not expecting, you know, the LGBTQ thing to actually extend into this real uh, awakening of non-binary and trans uh, rights and expression. So for me, it is still a bit of getting used to. You know, yes, this is yes. this is the this is the, the the guy who was who had it trained into him very significantly as a youth that that we that that one expresses his opinions or her opinions. So the pronoun question for me is, man, it's taken a whole lot, a whole lot for me to like shift my shift my my brain. And yet, when I watched this today, and and watched these three people discussing amongst themselves, I, I, I was just like, wow, I really get this. I really get representation in this context. I've been dealing a lot. We've been dealing a lot over here, of course, with representation in the in the racial and and uh, cultural context in in terms of in terms of race. And uh, and I'm getting representation more and more. So it's like this stuff is is, is coming forward for me, and I'm 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 experiencing more and more of a change in yes. my own uh, in my own thinking. Well, yeah, I mean, I should get. It's just like <laughs> the first little question that we've already like. All right, all right, and we've already gone gone deep. Yeah. I also just quickly want to say something on that is that uh, yes. like as a as someone who identifies as a as a gay man. Um, right. 
is that it, uh, the Stonewall riots that for a lot of the Western world, uh, right. if, you know, awkward term, but um, was uh, a, a, the first really visible part of the fight for uh, LGBTQ right. plus rights, uh, Stonewall riots, were spearheaded by trans women. That's right. Trans black women, trans right? Trans black women. That's important. That's it. Yes, ab- absolutely. Trans yeah. people of color fought for everyone's rights inclusively. (laughs) So the fact that trans people have sort of got left behind for a minute there by, like, the sort of white, cis, gay men is really upsetting to me, and I'm really glad that we're starting to see a little more representation on that. Absolutely. Absolutely. For me, it's a hunt as a, as a a straight cis man. I mean, just, like, I'm just, like, this is all... This is all just education and learning for me, just as it is with everything about race that I don't know and have not experienced yet, and all the things that are just coming coming out of hiding because because it's so necessary and and coming out of uh, and just seeking seeking yeah. representation. Yeah, absolutely. So yes, we you and I we're from from very different places. We we share the same uh, the same desire and. And passion, so that's good. And I think what you said is the most important thing as well. It's about education. It's about listening, yep. not talking, yes. and just yep. like hearing what other people have to say. But yeah, yes, let's exactly. let's keep going. <laughs> so so uh, and and again, here we are, of course, talking. So the second question was, yeah, and the second question was, what was yeah, what is your favorite smell? It is the smell of wood burning. Mm-hmm. I love. I love the smell of the first fires, um, you know, at um, in the fall, in the in the early winter, when when people begin burning fires in their stoves or a, or a campfire. It's a it's a smell of it's just a smell of uh, that that kind of thing. Here's in cuckoo, by the way. Okay, so for the listener who can't see, uh, Todd has a stunning dog in cuckoo. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about in cuckoo? He's currently, I can see him on the Zoom call digging into the couch behind Todd. <laughs> yeah, he is. He Yeah, he just ate, so so he's rubbing his face on the Irish blanket. Oh, great. That's what it's for. It's a dog napkin, yes. <laughs> that's it. That's it. So anyway, um, so, so, so the smell of wood. The smell of wood is probably my, my favorite smell. And if there's one that's a close second, it would be the smell of bacon. <laughs> it's a pretty good smell. Right, exactly. Uh, finally, um, you have seen The Matrix, right? I have indeed. If there was anything I could just have slotted into me, yeah, like um, I was like, I'm gonna learn kung fu. Yeah, that's not a bad suggestion, Kieran. <laughs> it's not a bad su- suggestion, but I think what I would what I would probably opt for is every language. Oh, that would be amazing. But if it's just one language, I feel like they'd be separate programs that you had to slot in. Are you in. sure? I No, I think there would be a master program. <laughs> I think it would just, because it, it's all coming down a wire, right? Uh-huh. It's, it's just like, is it a zip file or is it yeah. not a zip right. file? <laughs> so I think that that would be one of my, one of my, one of my major ones. Because I think that that would give me the greatest entree to learning more about, about everybody.
So you do and have done so many incredible creative things and have such a multifaceted career. Um, but I always find it interesting how people with such a varied life summarize what it is you do. I mean, it took me about two years myself to learn how to uh, or work out how to answer when people ask, what is my job? Um, so as such, it's a big one. But how would you introduce yourself to our listeners? Wow. Wow. What? Oh, Kieran, come on. That's, that's, that's a, that is a big one. I would say... Um, well, maybe if it's helpful, firstly, if your Uber driver is like, oh, what's work for you? What would you say to your Uber driver? Oh, exactly. If an Uber driver said, um, I would, I would probably first say I'm a solo classical violinist gone horribly wrong. (laughs) That's great. Yeah, that's, that is actually, I mean, in, in all fairness, you, you just, you kind of pinged my tagline that's that's what i've been using forever because it's so true you know it's i'm i'm a i'm a solo classical violinist gone horribly wrong or right as the case may be depending upon how you look at it um i'm i'm somebody who who grew up as a classical musician with all you know playing all the concerti and studies and sonatas that all the other kids played yeah and and when i hit college I hit, I, I hit composers right in the face. I just all of a sudden I had composers in my face, and I began to realize that that the lifeblood of the tradition was not in the repetition and recreation of old work, but in the development of new work. So that was my first kind of almost evangelistic giving over to music in a way that excited me. You know, because we all grow up doing a certain thing. You know, and. And I didn't, I somehow didn't have the freedom, and I'm talking about the spiritual freedom, to look at rock and roll or electronic music, and who yeah. even knew what that was at my school. Um, I, you know, when I got to school, I became an academician, right? I was all about the academy. I was all about the Western European canon yeah. and hierarchy. I was all about all that. I was as much, you know mired in my in my kind of western european evangelical christian straight white toxic masculinity it was just you know it's i i it was it's kind of who i who i grew up as so so my i i think that my education of course you know as it does for all of us it served me well mm. um and after having been kind of, I don't know, corrupted by by the idea of new music or creative music, mm. you know, um, I think I was open to other things as they came by. Right. I spent a number of spent a number of years kind of militarized by the European avant garde camp. Yeah, you know, so I was all about about playing the playing the fastest you know, most virtuosic stuff, you know, and taking the emotion, sucking the emotion out of music and, oh my God, I have to go home with dad at Christmas and play meditation from Thais again. And I, <laughs> and there were a few years that I just refused because I was so indignant. Yeah. Um, thank God he's still alive and I still can do that. Um, but, uh, you know, so, so as time wore on, uh, the, the, the more and more that life unfolded, the more and more I opened 
out to other styles, to other genres, to other ways of thinking. Um, I lost my faith. You know, I'm I'm an absolute uh, atheist. You know, I it's 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 not that I that I even think that. Uh, that God isn't on the outside, but it's even more like you know my my view of religion is not kind. So, um, be, because I see it creating so much stress, division, hierarchy, and oppression in the world for all of time, mm. that I think it's something that 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 we need to evolve into another uh, consideration of. Yeah. So anyway, the. Um, uh, electronics, computers—they were always kind of part of my life, you know. So what I would say is, is I'm a I'm a classical violinist, gone maybe horribly right, where where all things are possible, all things are open, and I'm a perpetual learner and I'm a perpetual educator, and both of those things are kind of the same to me. I can't live one without the other. I'm an eternal student, and I'm a sponge. And somebody who is uh, who is is into is more into music now than I ever have been, but for the connections to other people yes. through learning and education, rather than from performance mm. from a proscenium stage. You have a a lot more life experience than I do, but already I've realized that what. I'm, I mean, I love music for music's sake. I find uh, my training as in being a classical violist, where you've already talked about this, you and I talked quite a bit. I'm still struggling with that and where that is in my life, but I'm right. always passionate about music. I'm very right. passionate about um, uh, sharing music and right. I, I love curating that more than anything, I think it's a social aspect. That's a really big aspect of uh, my concert series, Dots and Loops. But a really big aspect of what you do, as you've just said as well, um, and something that I got from Chris Perrin, who um, you were you met when you were here last year. Yes, a, a really big like friend, influence, mentor, and starting Dots and yes. Loops sort of six years ago. Something that really stuck with me was him saying, and he's, he talked about this on a, a podcast that we did a uh, well, uh, my associate director connor did um, a, a couple of weeks ago but um is that you know people think that people go to a concert to listen to music but they don't they go to a concert because their friends going they stay because they start having you know a really great conversation with someone that they've just met or they they start getting really engaged with like the the, the atmosphere or the piece or whatever or because there's a bar or like there's there's so many like the music is not the most important part in many ways if that makes sense i i i first of all i receive that wholeheartedly it's it, it's really interesting to hear that point of view i used to have a slightly different point of view which now even as you spoke that it feels kind of romanticized my my old point of view and it was i used to say that that we go to concert i i, I always try to reduce this i we try to reduce things really down to their foundation it i kind of want to learn learn i kind of want to feel into that and I once said to myself, "Why do we go to Why do we go to concerts? Because you could be sitting and listening to a CD. It sounds much better mm. in headphones than it will in the concert hall. Um, why, you know? And I realized this is this romanticized part. I think that sometimes we go to concerts because 
we want to have a shared experience of something that is beyond our comprehension. This is, this is why vir- the virtuosity in the concert field is kind of so important. Seeing somebody do something that's almost impossible. The idea of, of a conductor leading Mahler too, and to see this mammoth piece take place on a stage. It's like, and having a shared experience. Those people in that room, they may not know each, some of them may know each other, but but you may not know a lot of people, but there was something that happened. I think that we as humans try to try to seek these these pinnacle mm. experiences, and especially when they are shared, they are amplified. The experience is amplified. So I think you're saying, Chris, and you were conversing about it in a different, in a kind of a different way, or Chris and Connor were were uh, conversing about it in a different way, in that you know this. We are humans still having a shared experience, and the music may not be the most important part. And I, I, I'm I'm ready. I'm ready to do that. Yeah. I'm ready to hang out with that idea. I don't I don't need to be the only thing in the room. I want to be one of the things yeah. in the room. And it provides a focal point. Yes. Oh, and we need those. Yeah. Yeah. It may not be eventually the most sort of important aspect of the whole. Yeah. Why people go? Why people yes. stay? Or whatever. Um, you, yeah, yeah. That that made me think of, um, the last big live dots and loops show that we put on, uh, nonstop, uh, which I wish you had been here for. It was sort of like feedback, but just so much bigger. Um, Uh, I was really, really, really proud of it. Um, just six hours of nonstop music, but differently to how your friends at Bang and a Can would do it. It was across different stages. Um, so like more like nice, a, a yeah. like a pop indie rock music festival while Excellent. music was happening on one stage on the other side of the space um, was being reset and stuff. So our sound engineers weren't hella stressed. Um, everything right. had time. Uh, but for the audience, it was just like this like yet yeah, nonstop like experience. There's also art galleries and stuff. But the way I curated it, it's sort of uh, yeah, very post genre had, you know, uh like uh, electro like dance artists we had folk we had um you oh, know ken so nice. thompson doing his yes. very like gnarly like uh, uh complex but jazzy compositions um but the whole night sort of was building towards uh hecatus uh, which right. I'm sure you know well, Louis and Louis Andreessen's Hecatus, which is basically um, I remember seeing it for the first time in 2016 at Bang in a Can. I was just like, <laughs> with everybody yes. dancing in yes. the back, yeah, 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 and people were like literally like raving in the back, like, um, uh, and it's like it's a really for the listener who, if you haven't heard it, um, it's a really intense, like. Uh, uh, hard to say it's like modernist it's sort of modernist european but also minimalist um but it's uh, yeah in a very postmodern way it's both a continuation and a reaction to european modernism but Mm -hmm. it's basically just uh two groups uh, of musicians uh five each side just uh uh riffing on a hocket and so what that means is like uh like left right um bouncing like this rhythm between each other but as it builds it just gets so 
intense and beautiful and all these like sort of rhythmic melodies come out of this traded like ping pong voice and it's it's a sort of piece that it's like and chris was describing this really well as well it's like everyone there was like riveted because it's like so it was a very risky piece i guess it, like there's a tangible feeling that someone could fall off the horse at any time and it's such a like um uh, that so much concentration is involved and it's like what you're saying now I can see that as well is it was a shared experience of actual virtuosity and I have a lot of issues with the term and the whole concept of virtuosity at times but this oh, really was like virtuosity in a thrilling captivating way um yeah so I can I can understand better what you're saying as well that people are there for a shared experience and that virtuosity can have a part in that for sure yeah, 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 yeah. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm. I had not remembered this, but 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 Hokadis was uh, was his group too. Yes, yes, that's right. Um, it was, and it. Oh, the, the thing I found most delicious about Andreessen is the the, the tambas. Like it's so yeah. unique. Like it's what like a a saxophone, bongos, electric keyboard, pan flutes. It was. It was. It was two Fender Rhodes. Yeah. Two pan pipes, two saxophones, two electric bass guitars, and two percussionists, and that, and that probably, I will bet you, is one of the sources of why Ensemble Modern had pan pipes uh-huh. in it, right? Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, and why, and why, why um, didn't Michael Gordon write trance for pan pipes too? Oh my God, yes, is I, it's there's yeah, and and isn't Hotokatus just one sixteenth note apart? Yeah. The whole way through. Yeah. I've never played that piece. And again, Caleb Burns also did that. Burhans did that with uh, Escape to Wisconsin. Mm. He, he he did this this one eighth note apart thing. It's 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 quite a thing. It's a quite an instrumental device, you know. I not not an instrumental device, a compositional device, I mean. Yeah. So yeah, I love that delicious, unique like timbre of those instruments together. But just quickly. Right. Um I my uh, the very close friend uh, Joe, who I live with, she always asks mm-hmm. these like sort of icebreaker questions, and I got a beautiful one from that just there. So you've never done Hecatus before, but if you were one of those five instruments and you could, you knew you could pull it off, would you do the pan pipes, Fender Rhodes, the uh, saxophone, the bongos, or it's the uh, electric bass? I would say probably the saxophone, but that's only because I'd love. To- to be, I would love to know how to play the saxophone. It would have nothing to do with Hokadis. I've had a weird uh, relationship with the saxophone. I grew up hating it, then I grew to absolutely love it. But now I'm also hating aspects of it as well because my housemate teaches saxophone amongst other woodwind instruments, and like oh, gotcha. student saxophone must be almost as bad as student violin. It's just so honky. Wow. Yeah. That's a that's that's that is definitely a, an image with which I resonate. But you were talking about 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 dots and loops yeah. and about the yeah, <laughs> and that's how we ended up at Hokadis. Yeah. I'm trying to work my way back <laughs> yeah. through the thread. But I did want to chat with you a little bit um, about your involvement with Bang and a Can. Uh, so a quick introduction, sure. I guess, from me for uh, listeners who may not be aware of Bang and a Can. They're a, uh, a new music organization based in New York. Um, and I realized after three or four years of running Dots and Loops that while I wasn't 
like specifically influenced by them. I didn't really know who they were very well until like a year or two end of running my concert series. We share a lot of ideals, this whole sort of post-genre, like anything goes vibe. They were one of the first groups to really sort of champion that. And Todd has worked very closely with them in many different ways since the beginning. And I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about Bang It Can, your involvement with them. How about a very personal story? This 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 might be this this might be fun. Just a little lead up backstory to it. I told you a little bit about when I was at Eastman in Rochester. That's one of the major conservatories on the uh, east side of the country, and uh, I I went there um, after having had a wonderful time studying with the uh, violinist Yasha Heifetz, the the really wonderful. <laughs> Wonderful is a pretty weak word um, for Yasha Heifetz, but but I did study with him in LA, and then uh, then I went back to pursue my studies at Eastman, and that's where I fell in with the composers. Uh, and then in the third year that I was at Eastman, on a whim, I took an audition for principal second violinist of the uh, Rochester Philharmonic. In the States, we have A orchestras, B orchestras, and C orchestras, and then regional orchestras, or something. I don't know exactly how the hierarchy works, but A orchestras are the major cities, B orchestras are the, are the less than major cities. So Rochester was a full-on orchestra, full-on like 60, 70-piece orchestra in Rochester, New York. So I did that job for three years. Um, uh, didn't save enough money. I spent it all. Bad, really. I, if I had to do it again, I'd probably do it differently. And uh, and then one day I decided I needed to to move on. And uh, so I went. I instead of going down to New York to work, and I really wanted to be in New York City. Uh, I went out to Long Island to get a master's degree without a bachelor's, by the way. So I'm still a college dropout, but I a college dropout with a master's degree. So. Um, so I did that, and that's when I joined the Steve Reich Ensemble, so on and so forth. Um, and after I graduated, I stayed out. There was bartending, playing weddings. I, Long Island. Long, Long Island, yes. And, uh, and, and I had no idea what to do with myself, really. I had no idea that I, I did not feel like I could be successful. I felt, I just didn't know, you know. So I played weddings. I played weddings, and I bartended. I'm imagining you doing like, you know, violin phase at weddings. <laughs> no, this never happened. No, no, no. It was it was all it was all, you know, trio sonatas by Zanakis. <laughs> so anyway, um so so I so I did that for quite a while. One day, one day, um one of the uh administrative assistants at the school at Stony Brook, she had heard that I was thinking about moving in and she came out. She says, you know, are you still looking for an apartment? And she was so lovely. I mean, this, this, this lady has preceded us to the great beyond, but, but her name was Terry and she was so wonderful to hook me up with her dear friend who had a one bedroom on the Lower East Side in the uh, Jewish garment, like uh, extraordinary Orthodox Jewish uh, area that were the garment workers' buildings, uh, like the, that the un, that the unions built, I believe, Is that down there in Manhattan. It was in Manhattan on the Lower yep. East Side. Yeah, as always, said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, in any case, come to find out, it was Michael Gordon's building. Oh, right. And I had already been touring with the Michael Gordon Philharmonic. Oh, really? 
right, which was his first band, Evan Zaporin, and he wrote the music for it, and we would go over and we would tour in Europe, in Amsterdam, stuff like that, in Holland. So, um, so Mark Stewart was in it, Mike Lowenstern. Uh, no, 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 it was Evan Zaporin. It was Mike Lowenstern when Evan couldn't go. Um, and uh, anyway, so so I said to I said to Michael, I said, you, I, I said, I think I'm going to be be living near you. And he's like, where? And I said, 11G. He was 9D. <laughs> so, so Michael Garden and I spent quite a bit of time uh, um, living two floors away from each other. Michael and Julie and I. This was when they were having kids and stuff, and it was, it was, it was cool. It was, it was a very cool thing. Anyway, that's just to say my beginning at Bang on a Can because I wasn't really involved in Bang on a Can yet. I was working with Michael. But literally 20 steps from our building was something called the Abrams Arts Center, uh-huh. which is where they would do marathons. Oh. So my first marathon that I performed on was there. Like literally walk out my door, walk 20 paces to the left, walk in the door. That makes getting home after a few drinks after the concert so easy. <laughs> well, of course, except that there were no bars. This was the Orthodox area. Oh, okay, yeah. So in any case, it was um, that was the beginning. And what I noticed there, and I guess the, the reason that I wanted to start there, was just to kind of riff on what you were saying and to kind of uh, perhaps explain or expand or illuminate the Bang on a Can aesthetic. Um, I think there's a real incredible story to be told here in that Michael and David and Julie... Uh, all studied at Yale together. They they encountered Martin Bresnik, who is just like one of our foremost composition teachers in the States, period. Also, lovely guy. An amazing... Yeah. He comes to Australia quite a lot because he is... Um, his partner, uh, Lisa... Uh, is Moore. Uh, yeah, Lisa Moore, my bad, um, is a... Uh, um, Australian-born pianist who currently lives with Martin in America but comes over here very often. She's one of my favorite pianists and people as well. Uh, so it was a great Australia link there. But anyway, go on, sorry. Yeah, so so in any case, uh, when, they, when they were in graduate school, I think Martin really impressed something upon them. He says, you know, nobody... And this is this. I don't want to say that I'm quoting this word for word. This is my interpretation of the story, but I think that what he said to them was, you know, nobody's waiting to hear your music. Nobody's like waiting for you to all of a sudden explode upon their scene and establish a place with the music that you've written. Uh, You're going to have to create your own opportunities, and you're going to essentially have to create your own audience, which is which remains true to this day. For everybody, right? Yeah, I mean, we we have we have a few clicks here that you can kind of fit into if mm. you know the right people and you write the right kind of music. That's what Dots and Loops was for me, and I think what Bang in a Can was for them is it was exactly like, exactly being like there is no way in the current like sort of musical climate where I'm in for me to do what I want to do exactly. So I exactly. guess I'll have to do it myself. Exactly, exactly. So 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 what they what they a couple of things that they did that were incredible. One is they invited all their friends to play and they made these marathon concerts. So what that meant is that they were creating community by inviting others to participate in what they were doing. That's number one, right? Number two was that instead of buying mailing lists from musical enterprises, instead of buying Lincoln Center's mailing list and trying to convert 
the subscription audience at Lincoln Center to come down to the Lower East Side to listen to weird music that falls in the cracks, they were like, who else likes stuff that doesn't have a place, that isn't easy, that falls in the cracks, that is experimental? Who else does that? Visual artists? Mm. Dancers seem to mm. like that. Choreographers seem to like that. So they so they bought those mailing lists. So once again, they were creating community. So I think that the that the real beautiful, beautiful story that I have been so fortunate to be a part of over these years has been the creating of a community where more people were welcome than were not. Yes. Right. I've, I have seen, I have seen, it's, it's kind of, kind of wild because we don't do that much Western European avant-garde music, but mm. yes, there's some boules now and then. Yes. That, you know, they, but they, but really the lineage with you in 2019. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Right. I, I guess Lickety's not like boules, but that was a pretty intense beat. So that was super microtonal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, we and we don't, we haven't done a lot of Babbitt, if you know, if any, really. But, but I mean, it really wasn't. It wasn't about like doing new music. I mean, the lineage was kind of clear. It was minimal. Yes. Right. Because all of them were not using minimalism in the traditional Steve Reich, Philip Glass, Terry Riley uh, sort of way, but they were more so taking those ideas and really using them to their in in with their own devices which were markedly different. Yes. I mean each one of those three the compositional voice is so distinct and unique. Yes, yes. So distinct, so unique. You cannot mistake it for anybody else. Like all the great composers throughout the mm. ages, right? It's just like there's a voice there. Yeah. But with those individual voices they created the marathon concerts, then they created a not-for-profit, then they created an ensemble, then they created a school. And what now? I mean, now, now, and then also the subsidiaries like Found Sound Nation and One Beat. Mm -hmm. uh, record label, great record label in Cantaloupe. Yes, great record label in Cantaloupe, which Ken Thompson began mm -hmm. uh, running. He was he was there at the inception of that. There's a lot. There's a lot that has that has gone on, and the one thing that has remained consistent is something that David Lang says so often when he's interviewed, and it's just you know he's like, "Here's the way." I, I'm not going to try to do a David Lang impression because that would be disrespectful, and it, I would never want to do that. <laughs> um, but but David Lang, he says, you know, we've just been trying to create the kind of world we would like to live in. Mm. And that is creating community is that, you know, creating the kind of world that you want to live in and and putting stakes in the ground and inviting people to, to participate uh, in it. That's a really nice way of thinking about it. I think a lot of my programming so far, what way I put on concerts has been more reactionary not aspirational mm. and that that's a really great way of putting it instead of being like i want to do things which are different or things which include the people that i think are marginalized or or or, or whatever to be more like positively aspirational that's a really nice way to think about it as well mm, right i i should i should say something before we leave this subject though kieran and that is that um 
you know, you've you've grown dots and loops from a kernel. Yeah. Yeah. You've you have you have popped this popcorn. And, you know, with the addition of of Connor to the team and 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 Flora and you just like everybody, everybody you've you have you have done you have done something which I we I think in fact I know because we talk about it. We all see as as a great inspiration to us that that you have created something from nothing just like just like one should right and it's like the fact that you were with us and the, and you had already begun it i think in the, in your first time with oh, us for four years yeah 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 and so it's like you know we i i know i i should say i shouldn't be saying we i should say i i am so very honored to be any sort of a part of sharing that stuff with you you've you've done it in a place that's very far away from us but is so oh man the other people that you have there with you um in in Australia I mean we get so many Australians who come to our uh to our summer camp to our instant you know and we love every single one of them the most extraordinary musicians more so though the most extraordinary people and you're one of them and and you have made something that matters you, and you are making me blush oh no no stop blushing so um it it and and having come come down there and been with you and seeing it ashley did it i did it ken's done it and lancelotti and and lancelotti yeah. it's like you know we see you, and man, we honor you. You know, because because I, I I don't have what it takes to curate and create an ongoing series, which happens year after year after year. I'm just trying to start a school. That's like all. That's 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 like what I can handle. So you know, much respect to you. You know, I mean, I think like I I, I look at a lot of what you can do, and it's like you know, I'm not a bad violist. Um, I've worked very hard at it for a very long time, but I look at how you play and sometimes I'm like, man, I wish I could do that or whatever. It's like everyone has their own things that they like aligns with their skills, but also with their passions, if that makes sense. When one can really let go of the conventions and the pressures and the expectations to really address one's passions, yes, that can happen. And boy, you know, make make no mistake. I spent plenty of time in my life uh, cow cowtowing to some other moralistic idea or ideal, and I'm I feel so grateful and fortunate that I began to understand this concept, which is sometimes I think kind of a maybe too much of an American thing of you know finding your own voice, you know, even to the exclusion of creating community and uh, it, that can be a problem you, you see mm. what i'm saying but it's not necessarily uh two different things exactly if you can see if you can see how those things can can be the same so i feel really grateful and fortunate that i that that did happen for me um i i was able to say okay okay i'm going to follow this thread i'm going to pull on these threads i'm going to to um open myself up to new things and pursue them. So yeah, um, and it is connected to my passion. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, if I die, I say this often, if I die tomorrow, I'm pretty complete. Don't have a lot of things left on my, on my bucket list. You know, I'm, I'm doing what I want to do and need to do and I'm an ecstatic to just create new connections, meet new people, be able to contribute 
be able to learn and to be able to participate in some cycling of energy, which is incredibly human, grounding, and foundational. That's really good to hear. You were talking before a lot about your musical journey. I honestly find it so, so interesting. Every time I talk to you, uh, and I've been really lucky to spend a bit of time with you now, but you just come up with a different story. I'm like, holy shit. Like how much, <laughs> how much like shit have you done in your life? Which is fascinating. Like if someone doesn't write your biography, they really need to. Oh, um, that's very it was, sweet. It's just such a great story. <laughs> like oh, so many great stories, but something I definitely want to touch on um, in, in this chat um, is what, you do like you describe yourself as a hybrid musician could you elaborate on what that means to you yeah i'm i'm kind of weird as one goes on and gets older you write that bio and then you hear it read back at you hybrid musician and present music and you say oh my god did i really write that um you know it's and i've i i really feel a little i'm beginning to to feel a little bit more self-conscious about it i should say just in all transparency one of the founding fathers of the hybrid musician movement. What that means is that, and this is the problem with time passing and the writing of history in such a short time, there was a period where there weren't that many of us coming out of classical music that were extending into other genres. I mean, there were a few of us, but there weren't that many. Now there are more than there are not, it seems to me. I mean, the number of violinists, classical violinists, who I know in New York, who are friends of mine, who are younger than me, who already play some jazz, who all you know, who do this and who that, who do that, who've really reached out and and are creating on a level that belies their tradition, are there? There are multitudes of them. So anyway. This was something that that somebody wrote it for me in a bio many many years ago. I am a hybrid musician. I am I am somebody who plays a hybrid instrument. My instrument is not Tattoo it is a wooden time. violin. It is a wooden violin. It is made in 1999. It is a traditional violin. I do not play solid body electric violins. I have no I have no love for them. It is amplified I plug it into pedals, I plug it into Ableton Live, into a laptop computer, and I loop my face off if I can, and I try to create great, big, huge orchestral textures and some EDM, uh, you know, these... I, I I play every you know in my music as I'm playing the things that occur to me to play the things that come out of my soul come from everything from Indian music to Latin music to black music you know um, uh, to uh, uh, what else to jazz it's like I've there's Irish music Americana like old timey stuff you know Cora music from Africa. Uh, West African music, West African rhythms, like Gamelon, and then all of my friends, like everybody I've ever played with, there's a little piece of that person which I take along with me from inspiration and from hearing them and really respecting and revering them. So, you know, as a white, very like mutt 
American, you know, very traditional, mutt American uh, from the West Coast, uh, from Hollywood type of, you know, type of vibe. So, I mean, as, as one of those people, I don't have ties to ancestry, um, whether European or otherwise, and I think it probably is all European. I've never done one of those tests. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't have that tie to ancestors like, like an immigrant person, a person who's emigrated from, uh, from abroad might have. So um, all of my influence have been, all of my influences have been assimilated with love and respect. Mm. I'm really on guard for appropriation, uh, especially in this day and age when it, it when it can be dangerous and disrespectful in 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 those some ways that you don't even think about. And again, that goes back to yeah, what we were saying at the start is that uh, it's about being open to learning and not talking all the time, but listening. And it's like uh, 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 as we were talking about right at the start with the rise of like trans and LGBTQ voices, is it's like you know being more aware of appropriation or whatever. It's not that people didn't used to do it; they did all the time. It's just that people didn't listen or didn't give the people they were appropriating from the voice or to say no. That's actually kind of not not good for me yeah yeah so all of that stuff is is kind of in me so so when i use the term hybrid musician i play a hybrid instrument which is a mix which is a blend of old and new technology because the violin is technology remember and so is the viola and i'm really into connecting with all cultures and ways of making music and really allowing myself to be part of some larger uh, transfer of energy through through music and hoping for it to be part of me, I guess. And that doesn't make me really now any different. So, so going, going back to any different than any other musician, uh, going back to what I was saying before, this hybrid musician thing, I don't know. I think this has got, I, I think I have to maybe start to work with this in a little bit different way to tell my story. I think it is important um, I, I I do think it is important that I can truthfully say I'm happy in my body, happy in my life, happy in my music, and I don't have a lot of stress in terms of having to measure up to some standard because I'm interested more in in creating my own uh, for for myself. So I think to the degree that I can say yes, I found my way, and I would like to encourage all other musicians to find their way, this conversation is important. In a different way, I now see so many other musicians who can say, yeah, I'm a hybrid musician too. And I celebrate the development of that. The same thing happened kind of with Ethel, right? It's like, it was kind of funny when when I started that band in 19, what was that, 19... 1999 was it or 2000 i forget when we started anyway um so for the listener yeah ethel just quickly is uh you know uh formed of uh, a traditional instrumentation of string quartet so two violins viola and a cello but very much not that as well so go on so um so one of the things that i really had hoped for in that band and it happened was was uh you know i mean my men, my mentors, my, not not my mentors. Um, 
in terms of chamber music at the time, the people that I looked at were the Turtle Island String Quartet, which was a straight mm-hmm. representation of a jazz combo, but in string quartet form. And of course, the Kronos Quartet had already begun, and the Kronos was huge. And so Kronos was hip, and Kronos was commissioning things. They were awesome. Not really improvisers, to you know, it's like you wouldn't you would write stuff for them and they would they would execute it beautifully. But but I wanted to kind of be like a Kronos model that that also improvised and blew, you know. So it's like uh, that's that that was one of the goals. It was also one of my goals to to self produce concerts and do interdisciplinary art. So so that the lines really really got blurred. So that's kind of uh, the band started out under the name Hazardous Materials, <laughs> believe it or not, and then and then eventually regrouped as as Ethel when everybody like threw down and said, "I want a piece." You know, let's... I think Ethel is a great name, though. It makes me think of like, and I mean this in a, in a like, it's one of these things that I'm going to say that I think someone could take it the wrong way. I do it quite often. It's that it reminds me of like a chicken. Like I feel like I'd call a, like a chicken Ethel, but that makes me think of like you. It's like very sort of comforting and welcoming to me, if that makes sense. Right, it's right. Like, it, it brings to me like the textures of like you know like you know, padding feathers and like a friendly little bird who's just like, hey, what's up? Like, right? it's a very sort of welcoming name to me. You know, there's, you you know, where I'll tell you where it came from is kind of fun. Um, so first of all, the big, the big American representation of that name is the best friend of Lucy, of Lucille Ball, Lucille Arnez in I Love Lucy. So Ethel yep. is that big character. So, but also... Um, uh, I think it was Mary, the other violinist, um, who, you know, we, you know, <laughs> we're like sitting around trying to come up with names, and it's just such a such a such a godforsaken enterprise. This this naming thing, it's so difficult. So anyway, I I, I think that uh, I was just like, you know, why why can't we just name it like a child? Because you know, when you name a child, the child grows into the name. So if somebody thinks, Oh, that's a stupid name or whatever, you know, it doesn't matter because the, because the child eventually it takes on this, the character of this name. So I'm like, why, you know, call it Bob or Frank or Joe or Ethel. And, you know, and that was, and that was my, my take. But then I think the next day, Mary came in with the having watched Shakespeare in love. And you know that Shakespeare in Love, the movie starts out where Shakespeare has writer's block because he's having to write a play under the name Romeo and Ethel, the pirate's daughter. And so he cast aside Ethel and we picked her up. That's the, <laughs> that's the kind of party line for, the, for, for how the name came about. But anyway, yeah, so, uh, but, but the point being, just going back to this, the point being not to talk about Ethel forever, but there, there weren't that many of us out there, you know, I mean, it was a Turtle Island Kronos and then, and then we kind of walked into this kind of vacuum at the, at the time, there weren't that many string quartets that were doing something contemporary out there. Then after we did that for a little while, then all of a sudden there was this glut of new music, string quartets, each one of them slightly different. You know, Mevo's handling a lot of the uptown and and kind of graphic notation stuff and then Jack Quartet and like all of these folks came along and all these brilliant, beautiful string quartet bands 
are out there now. Oh my God. So it's, um, I don't know why, why we brought that up. Oh, just in terms of the hybrid thing, you know, it's like times change, times change and people pick up the mantle and use it for their own devices to be creative in their own ways and then completely make new things just as you have done with dots and loops. That's the point that that's, that's the circle round. There's definitely something to chat about there. Maybe, maybe another time, uh, 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 joining the dots of Todd volume two or something. Ah! But, um, I, I think about a lot, uh, is, uh, string quartet being like one of the most, like for want of a better word, like elite classical instrumentations, like, uh, for a classical composer to write a string quartet can often be like the most like terrifying thing for them to do because all of the most sort of like highly regarded in air quotes, you know, composers were defined by their string quartets. So like Haydn, Beethoven, Bartok, um, uh, all, all sort of like the string quartets were sort of the, 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 a lot of uh, historians would uh, say is sort of the um, pinnacle of what they wrote or the the, the 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 summary of what they were doing at the time or whatever. So for a, a group that really is very rooted in the classical tradition and a lot of things that give me a lot of anxiety or uh, that I disconnect from, is my favorite group to play in. I love string quartet making music yeah. as a string oh. quartet yeah i will i will tell you it's it is one of the most rewarding things that i've ever done in my life you know it's also one of the most pro it's definitely the most problematic thing i ever did in my life but that's just because i think that 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 democracy inside of inside of a uh, a group of four people is kind of hard to achieve it is yeah. i've seen one band do that you know close up really beautifully and mm. what's interesting about about that thing as i've watched it is where it's like full full-on democracy it's like full-on real democracy and it's weird sometimes to watch because because there's so there's there there's so much withdrawal from engagement you know it's it's like a weird a weird thing yeah. to to withdraw from engaging personally in a way and just be sort of by the numbers so you don't upset people or don't overwhelm the group yes exactly oh man it's crazy and i'm like wow that ain't no way to live yeah, but right? yet, you know i could not do that i'm just like when i'm passionate about something i want to tell you about it <laughs> that's it that's it that's it and you know and and that's the weird thing in our business is there are these really blurred lines right because it's like you 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 go to work to accomplish a goal. You know, when people go to work in normal corporate environments, there are laws around relationship. There are laws around diplomacy. There's a whole HR department. Whereas in a string quartet, like often, like more often than not, they're like one, like two of them are sleeping with each other. Exactly, and, exactly, <laughs> like, exactly. And, and um, like there is an HR. Right, right. And and it's and it's a really interesting dynamic where because and this also is true with actors. Actors handle it differently. But in the mm. theater, it's like, you know, if you're going to do if you're going to make a play with a relationship in it, it's like where is the line there? Personally and professionally. The same thing with, with musicians. When you're in a string quartet, the intimacy 
is amazing. I have been in some musical situations in chamber music. You know, when I play chamber music, I want to look in somebody's eyes. I want to be in somebody's face. I want to really communicate and enjoy the playing together. And there are some people who can't deal with that. Yeah. Who who can't be that intimate. So, and that's kind of interesting when you're in a string quartet, you really do live together, you know? You know, we always used to say it was like a marriage without the sex. It was it was really it's really it's an interesting, it's a very interesting animal. And I'm really glad that I never realized that um, that it's daunting for a composer to write a string quartet. I never thought about that. So I think that's why I went ahead and wrote one. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, it would have been much too daunting. Yeah. to tell us about um, your your recorded works first because for example um, uh, Outerborough uh, your double album that you released uh, almost almost 10 years ago now 2011 really yeah. one of the most like influential things for me as I was finding my own voice like oh. having heard that and a whole different story, like, oh, my gosh, it's going to give us both PTSD. But I started off with a trio, Michael Gordon's piece, and that's eventually what led me to come and work with you because I was like, oh, my God, I've never practised anything harder. How is this possible to play? And you were basically like, it's not. <laughs> but anyway, we've both had mentally difficult times with that exactly. amazing piece. But that's exactly. not my point. That'll go on another like hour long conversation. My point is, I just, I just like to talk about a bit about your your recordings. If you want to center that on on Outerborough, that's fine. Or also, if you have any other projects going on, sure, sure. You know, if 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 your listeners are are interested in hearing a couple of different things, I mean, uh, both Outerborough and and a score 
a movie score to a film called These Birds Walk are both available at digifiddler.bandcamp.com. So you can find them there. Um, in terms of recorded works, the things that I've been, I mean, Outer Borough is one, um, one track on the Meredith Monk remixed album that, uh, that came out a while ago and a Terry Riley remixed uh, album as well. There's, there, there are a few things out there that, that I've done that I, that I feel really good about in terms of recorded work. Outer Borough Outer Borough started in 2005 um, when when my whole string quartet thing came to kind of a culminating end, and um, with Ethel and I began to to think about what I wanted to do next. And when you get out of a situation like that, the the last thing you'll you're going to do is make another string quartet. That's for sure. And then it was like, what kind of a band would I want to do? And I'm like, well, I made a string quartet. And now there are lots of string quartets, and so we don't need another string quartet. And you know, Miles Davis, the one of the one of the greatest tales of Miles Davis is like saying, to, I guess it was Herbie Hancock. I, I forget, I forget how this story goes, but it's like, don't play the notes that are there; play the notes that aren't there. So metaphorically, I take take that very seriously. So, you know, we got plenty of trios, plenty of piano trios, plenty of quartets, plenty of all these things. What do you want to do? So for a while, I thought about, you know, maybe I'll put a power trio together, like violin, bass, and drums. Nice. You know, still still an idea that I that I have yet to to deal with. I just haven't, you know, found the found the right people. And of course now traveling is, you know, not gonna happen anyway. I'd book that. I'd book the hell out of that. <laughs> it was anyway. I I I basically said I got to be a solo artist. So uh, one of the things I did was I moved up here to North Adams. At that point, right at that quartet ending, I I I moved up here. I thought I was going to be here for a year and make a record. It ended up I was here for six years. Three years into it, I met my love Isabel, my partner of twelve years, and then. You know, six years later, I came out with this record. Um, over the time of six years, I had just recorded as practice, you know, just as 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 musical practices, as artistic practice. I'm like, I'm going to just do this. So I had a bunch of recorded work, including some stuff that didn't make the record. And then, as we re- as I said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to release it in 2011. It occurred to me, I am not only a composer. This is my first outing as a composer. I have so many friends who I love, whose music I would love to play. Let me call them and ask them if they would be willing to write for me. Mm. And there you go. Both members of the books, Michael and David. Julie was unable to. Um, um, Ken Thompson. Phil Klein. uh, Michael Lowenstern. Have I missed anybody? Boy. Um, Anyway, it is, you know, so... It was this great gift that all these folks would write a piece for me. And so that's how it became a double CD. And it really makes sense. The more you listen to it, like, honestly, I, 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 I you know, I, I give praise where praise is due, but I don't say this sort of shit, like, if I don't believe it. I often, I love the album as a concept. It might be a bit dated now, but it's one of my favorite, like, forms, formats, uh, of music, I just listen to albums, and even if there's a couple of tracks which are great, 
my number one thing is an album that makes sense as a whole. Oh. I would say that there's very, very, very rarely a double album that works. And the way I put it to people is like, if if the Beatles couldn't really do it excellent, like the White Album's amazing, don't get me wrong, but it's like, like it's, it didn't work as well for me as an album it works uh, as, say, you know, Sgt. Pepper's or Abbey Road or whatever. I'm like, if the Beatles couldn't do a double album, who can? But I would mm. say, because of that dual nature of it, that one one disc is like a lot of your own compositions and you know, leading from improvisation and stuff, and one is other people's works, that they sort of complement and make sense with each other. It does. It really works as a double album, and I listen to it through all the time. Oh, you know, Kieran, it's 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 uh, it is the greatest, <laughs> the nicest thing you can say to somebody who's made a record is. I went back and listened to your record again. Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, to, to in these days where records so often only get one listening, <laughs> um, or, or, you know, it's real. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. It's, uh, it's valuable. It's valuable to me. It's encouraging to me. And I appreciate it so very, very much, um, that it, that it still means something to you. It's kind of interesting. I, I don't go back and listen to my own music very much. Oh, it's awful. It's it's weird, right? And it's and it's kind of weird even from a production angle, right? Because I I do stuff I do stuff now that's that's very different, you know. It is very very yeah. different, you know. And I've been going live on uh, Facebook and YouTube and Twitch um, recently over the past ever since you know we went inside the past couple of months, and so it's really interesting because all the all that music is improvised, mm-hmm. every single bit of it, and so. To hear what I'm playing now, who I am now, what sounds I value now, how I listen now, it's so different that really going back to listen to Outer Burr is like, yeah, this, th- I'm really glad I did this. This really does represent this time. And I do think it holds up and it stands the test of time. So I don't devalue my own work in any way. Mm. And, and it's now. And Isabel is constantly on me with good reason. I have three albums sitting on a hard drive. Uh, we're turning into a bit of an Aphex twin of yourself here. I okay, <laughs> and 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 I really need to put these things out and get them out there in the world, you know. Um, and and meanwhile, I just created a whole album's worth of stuff by going Facebook Live like yeah. eight times over the past you know few months. So. It's it's an interesting it's an interesting time to be looking. Just do a SoundCloud drop. Drop it all on SoundCloud. <laughs> oh yeah, right, right. <laughs> um, it's it's a very interesting thing to look at what music means to us, both as performers and as listeners, mm. and what it means in the context of it being so devalued on Spotify. Mm. Yeah, right. And so it's 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 tricky, you know. It's a tricky thing. So we so we're watching meaning change, and we're watching connection change, and we're watching different things amplify and other things go away. So I'm I'm really I'm really in it for the interest right now, you know, to see to see who's doing what, why, when, how, mm. you know. So it's uh, it's a very complex it's a very complex time right now
also, we were just talking about, uh, you know, your sort of recent greatest hits, if you will. But something that I'd love to uh, chat about before we wrap up is what you are sort of doing right now in uh, the, the school that you are developing yourself. And I know I sort of had a, a little taster of that when I came over to work with you in, in 2019. And though it was very uh, difficult, it was a very difficult time for me for a multitude of reasons you and the time I spent with you was the best part of, of my album mm. recording process. Um, and I don't know what I would have done without it. Um, so yes, please tell us about your school. Oh goodness. Well, so ever since we moved, so we, we actually bought a place up here in 2016. That's in North Adams. In North Adams. Right. And it's a, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful, uh, area as as Kieran has just mentioned lots of rolling hills nothing too you know Mount Mount Greylock is the is the highest mountain in Massachusetts it is just not that high it's not that tall so they're just kind they're hills more you know and they're beautiful very green very green yeah we live on uh, we live on six acres of uh, of wooded land and uh, so we have a running dog as we mentioned also so so we spend a lot of time doing those types of things which are healthy for the soul and healthy for the body and one of the reasons that we moved up here was also partially my my physical health as I was as I was you know hitting my 50s uh, I realized that I needed needed to not concentrate on ambition so much anymore and on the business uh, of music, but instead maybe needed to concentrate on on things like artistry and good health and stuff like that. So that's why we came up here. Um, and as we did with this six acres and this house, uh, one of the reasons we bought it was because it's got a beautiful, huge kind of finished basement, which we're still building out and right now into a production studio. And originally I had thought, oh, recording studio, recording studio. And, you know, recording studios can be upwards of $150,000 to build if you want to do it right. And then once you've built it, you can't sell the house as a house anymore. you got to sell it to another engineer, right? So, so we began to, uh, to think about residencies and having people come over. And uh, and Kieran has joined us, Ailey Robertson, the great Celtic. Uh, we both have so much love for Ailey. Yes, right. She's writing us. She wrote a piece for your record. And, uh, and so Ailey came and did one and I've had people from all over the world come and do residencies with us, the Atlas Quartet, Atlas String Quartet. Oh, great. So, so you know, we've done a lot of teaching here over the years, over the three years that we were here. When, when all this stuff happened, which is not anywhere near stopping happening, I realized that that we were nearing nearing a point of real change, and it was an opportunity for all of us to level up our game on the internet mm. uh, tip. So I realized immediately, of course, that my gig at the Manhattan School of Music, where I teach contemporary performance majors... Uh, I that went online immediately, and I realized in Bangalore, can started to, to say, "Okay, we're going to do we're going to do marathons. We're going to do marathons. So let's do it." And I did this thing with Jason Robert Brown, the great Broadway composer, with Ariana Grande, and and we just recorded. You know, the whole band recorded not to a click track, but to a track of Jason playing the piano and singing in his house. I was like, "Wow!" You know. 
oh, wow. And I noticed all my colleagues in New York going out and trying to buy microphones and starting to record in their houses. Yeah. I'm like, wow, what? There, there, there's something I have to offer here that is knowledge. I also had to dig down into what the word streaming meant. I had to figure out what was going on on Twitch. I had to, I had to get over my fear of looking into a camera, which I happen to be doing right now with yeah. you, Kieran. And I had to learn all about video quality and frame rates and, and, and 1080p and, and 4k and all this other stuff. You know, I had a recording studio at my disposal for the past 15 years, but an audio is important, but now what? Right. Yes. So I had to buy lights and I had to buy a few more cameras and I've had to buy a video switcher and, and I had to look at software. So anyway, that all led to the creation of a school called Amplify This. At least that's what it's currently called. And we inaugurated our, our school with, a, with an eight-week summer program that began whenever it began in July, I guess. We're, just, we're two weeks away from finishing our, our eight-week program. We've got some extraordinary participants that have uh, that have rewarded us in every way that I hope that we've rewarded them. Um, it's more of a the inaugural program was definitely a mentoring event. It was you know come along, we'll level up your internet thing. We'll talk about musical expansion. We'll talk about putting a stake in the ground and really why do we make music now? Yes, right. It's like with everything going on in the world with with all the stress and upset. What are we doing this for? You know, it's not the concert hall anymore. Not right now. So how do we create a new and how do we really bring our full selves to the table? So that's what what it has been about and that's what it will continue to be about because that's what I'm about. And that's what Isabel's about. And so and we're doing this this together. So uh what the what the what all the courses all the courses in the future will be about uh, supporting people in leveling up their recording and creative game, uh, in in reassessing why they do what they do, if they want to make career changes, if they if they if they play the guitar and they're like, you know, I really want to explore composition now. We're here to support that. If somebody's like, you know, I love writing music, I love playing music, but I am just tired of doing it in a subscription series for a concert hall full of people that I don't really resonate with. Mm. I would rather go, go into underserved communities and create some hybrid of making music and gardening. We are here for that. What is your favorite Dots and Loops memory? Now, we only officially had you out for one show, but we did have you here for a good, you know, week and a half. A good so, 10 days. Yeah. So, if you could maybe think back to that time, maybe, and just say, you know, even something unexpected or weird or whatever. But yeah, favorite Dots and Loops memory. Joe and Luke taking me out to listen to the birds. That's so beautiful. Huge big thank you to our special guest uh, for this episode of Joining the Dots, Todd Reynolds. Thank you, Kieran. Such a such a great pleasure to be with you and your listeners. 
This episode of Joining the Dots was made possible with the support of our funding partners, the Australia Council for the Arts and the Australian Cultural Fund and our patrons. A huge thank you to our editor, Dan Kasilke, to Madeline Kokolis, who created the beautiful theme music, and to Chris Perrin for his graphic design wizardry. To stay in the loop, like and subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also sign up to our email newsletter on our website, dotsandloops.com.au to be notified of new episodes and hear everything that we're up to. Until next time, make sure you check out the Joining the Dots video tutorial series, which you can find on our YouTube channel. And thank you, dear listener, for joining us on Joining the Dots. Please share with your family, friends, the art lovers in your life, your dog, your cat, you never know, they'll probably love it. <laughs>